everyone. Welcome back to Gen Z's Digital Decalogue. I'm your host, Shivani Murugapuram. A little bit about our guest of honor today. Eliza is the co-founder of Technically Politics, a movement that's working to change digital regulation laws by leveraging youth voices and needs. Eliza was formerly the head of advocacy education at lookup.live, where she helped organize and spoke at the Youth for Youth I Summit. She is currently a student at Brown University and is a youth advisory board member at the Children's Screen Time Action Network. And this summer, she's an intern at Accountable Tech. It's great to talk to you, Eliza. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. And I think before we really get into some of the deep end of the questions, I thought it would be fun to do a little rapid fire of some kind of like icebreaker type questions. Um, Awesome. So just try to answer them as quickly as you can. And I'm going to like speed run through the, some of these questions. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. What's your favorite color? Purple, specifically a uh, lavendery. All right. Would you rather be an octopus or a unicorn? Unicorn. I do not think I could live underwater for the rest of my life. <laughs> all right. Would you rather use lose your sight or your memories? Definitely sight. Interesting. Would you rather watch nothing but Hallmark Christmas movies or nothing but horror movies? Hallmark Christmas movies, hands down. Hate horror movies and Hallmark Christmas <laughs> movies take up most of my moving watching repertoire anyway. Yeah, same. I mean, I can't go one Christmas without binge watching a couple of those. Oh so my God, it's necessary. And they release like 10 more each season. So they do. I kind of love how I, I already know it's going to happen by the time like I... <laughs> The first like five minutes or actually <laughs> before that yep yep minute yeah, the, I, the movie title is released yeah and i feel like even like the the trailers for them sometimes i'll watch the trailer and it's kind of like a mini movie in itself like it <laughs> gives away the whole thing yeah all right thank you so much that was great of course so, kind of into your story um i'd love to ask you how has your college experience been like so far and what's your major or field of interest College has been amazing, I think, especially coming off of COVID, um, Mm -hmm. space to just engage with other young people without really worrying so much about the impacts of COVID to the extent that it was in high school. I just finished my freshman year um, at Brown, um, and it's just been such an amazing place. And to get to be around people that are so brilliant and so humble. And so you'll be having a conversation with someone and talking about the most ridiculous thing. And then it'll pop up that they worked on somebody's campaign or that they make movies in their free time. And it's just been such a nourishing and challenging, but I think in the best way kind of environment. As for major, I am so undecided. Um, Public health is probably my top interest right now. I feel like it encompasses all of the various things that I want to explore in my professional and personal life. Um, And then education and Latin American and Caribbean studies are also up there. So I have to figure it out in the next semester-ish and hopefully that will, hopefully that will happen. But it's been such a wonderful place for academic and social exploration and just so cool to be living around people who are all your age and have such a vast array of interests and passions and drive, but I'm really loving it and feel so lucky to be at such a special place. That's so great. And I love like the passion you have about your university and the people that you're around. And I think it's really cool, like sort of versatile majors you're looking at. I mean, they seem like really cool things to study and I'm glad you're getting the chance to explore that 
and I'm excited for myself too. Just by the way you're talking about college, <laughs> I am joining in the fall and you kind of got me excited already for it. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. It is amazing. Awesome. So kind of transitioning into the topic of digital well-being, what really sparked your interest in this movement and this idea? So I think it started honestly from birth. My parents were very intentional about how they wanted to introduce technology to myself and my younger sister. And while we had tech in the house growing up, it was a lot more of go outside and be creative. And if you're bored, figure out how to keep yourself occupied. We had a TV in my living room growing up and it was never turned on when my younger sister Susanna and I were in the room. And so my parents just kept this black box in our room and or in the living room. And when we would go to bed, they would watch TV, but we did not grow up with exposure to digital tech um, the way that most of our peers did at that time. And then was slowly exposed to more technology through public school and I eventually got a slide phone and my parents finally relented and let me get Instagram in eighth grade and my mental health just plummeted during that time and I deleted Instagram with my best friend at the beginning of freshman year of high school and my well-being increased substantially from there and so just thinking about that correlation of my one year on social media was also the year at which my mental health was at its worst. And obviously there are outside factors, a big part about being middle school, but there's definitely something to be said about the fact that my time on Instagram really perpetuated a lot of self-esteem struggles and interpersonal relationship problems. And then the fall of my junior year, I attended the Mountain School, which is a semester school program in Vermont for high school juniors. And I went four months without my phone there. And it was and such an enriching experience and really hard hands-on academics and you're living in dorms with people. And I got so close with my 44 peers and the faculty there and didn't need my phone to do it. And that was such a pivotal eye-opening experience of it is possible to foster this human connection. And I think these feelings that we're all really searching for without technology as a means of facilitating that. And then once I was back in my large suburban public school, almost instantaneously, I was back on my devices. And I have this memory that I talk about a lot in my digital wellness work of walking through the halls and it was passing periods. There were hundreds of kids strewn by each other and nobody was talking. And you could hear the patter of footsteps, but everybody either had earbuds in or was looking at their phones. And it felt so alien and inhumane. And I think that was a big catalyst of something needs to change here. And digital technology is such an amazing resource. So why is it extracting from these opportunities of real in-person connection? And why is it perpetuating mental health issues for an entire generation. And then COVID hit and suddenly being online was the safest and the only way to engage with each other. And so really, again, thinking about how can we change the way that we interface with our devices such that they are healthier for us. And that's really where my work started from that. If we as individuals and as parents and educators and smaller communities are very intentional about how we interact with our devices, we will fix the problems. And it was only until a year after my work in this space of realizing, sure, that's a very important element, but if we don't have systemic change, most of our attempts at altering our relationships with devices are not going to be sustainable. 
I think that's a wonderful point when you talk about systems. And when I think of that, I think a lot about what you said in terms of the suburban public high school life. And that's kind of very relatable to me as well. And I think it's so much enrooted, I feel like, deeply in the way we interact with one another as high schoolers. It's just a part of our culture, I think, at at some point. Like, um, I remember this is one thing I talk about a little bit as well. And it's I went to a couple of birthday parties recently, like the Sweet 16 era when that was happening. (laughs) Um, And when we were going to them, a lot of my friends kind of did it pretty simply. It was in their backyard. We were chilling. But like we made TikToks like the whole time at half of them. And that was kind of a trigger moment for me because I was like, wow, this is just something that we're so obsessed with. Like it's just a part of our daily lives now. We make TikToks at prom. Like after prom was over, we stood outside and a bunch of kids were lining up to make like a fun TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, it was something that brought us an entertainment value, but it also was so embedded into our culture and the way that we interacted with one another that we just was drawn to wanting to do that and even when we you know had a speaker come into our school to talk about digital well-being susan came actually um virtually to talk to um one of the clubs at our school and it was great but like i feel like a lot of people they weren't as receptive to the idea of digital well-being because they didn't see it as a problem yeah which is kind of interesting And I think when I started my work in this field too, it was very black and white in Mm -hmm. my perspective. And it was any screen time is bad screen time. And then I learned about active versus passive use. And so if you're out with friends and everyone's at the restaurant table with their phones out and no one's talking to each other, you're all in your own little bubbles of worlds and missing out on the space to be with each other in the physical realm. And I think that can be really harmful. I think there is something to be said about everyone doing a TikTok together yeah. at prom and maybe you're talking mm. with people you wouldn't otherwise be talking with. Of course, if that's infringing on, well, otherwise we would be sitting and having a heart to heart or going out and getting ice cream or doing something that we can't do on screens, that becomes an issue. But I also think there's a means of connection that I think these digital technologies and social medias were designed to create that there's still a kernel of that. And it's figuring out how can we embrace the best parts of this culture and also work to have those difficult conversations with ourselves and with each other and sit in the moments of discomfort where we're noticing ourselves feeling a little socially awkward or isolated. And instead of automatically pulling our phones out of our pocket, we turn to the person next to us and ask for their name and do those same intro icebreaker questions. Like, what's your favorite color? Do you have siblings too? What are you interested in? Uh I think we're starting as a generation, we're starting to forget how to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a wonderful point. And I think that talking about the balance between the good and bad is vital. I mean, we can't look at it as a black and white situation because I don't think it's ever going to be that way for our generation. Um, But you mentioned that in eighth grade, you used Instagram and then you stopped at the beginning of ninth grade. Do you currently use any social media platforms? So I have... Instagrams in an unconventional way. My mountain school semester afterwards, we made an Instagram that everyone in our semester has access to. And so we all have the login information and it's kind of dwindled in recent months, but especially right after our semester when we were desperately missing that community. And then as COVID picked up, people would post on it. And so we would post birthday pictures. And if we were missing each other and we did a a thing where everyone posted their baby pictures. And so it was a way of using Instagram that I had never experienced or heard of before. And it was awesome. Um, And just the space for all of us to be in communication with each other in a way that I think a private account doesn't really allow for. And then 
Emma and I with Technically Politics made a Technically Politics Instagram account. And I definitely still fall into the rabbit holes if I download the app on my phone and you can see accounts that are public or that you follow. And then when I notice myself that happening for myself, I delete the app and make myself be a lot more intentional about when I go on it. And I think there's this false notion that people in this sphere have a perfect relationship with their devices and absolutely not. It is always a work in progress. And I feel really grateful to have been part of this field for the past two years, because I think I have a larger awareness of what I want my relationship with my digital technology to look like and steps I can take to get there. But I still spend more time on my phone than I want to a bunch of times. Last week I was sick and was in my bed and usually I don't have my phone in my room overnight. And last week I did in case I needed anything. And I would be on my phone until two in the morning doing nothing of importance or value or nourishment. And that was a big whoa moment to me of when my phone is across my room, I'm not on it at night. And when it's right next to my bed, I am. So that deviated from the original question a little bit, but yes, shared Instagram accounts. And then I have the Visco I made in eighth grade and the Facebook I made for my crew team in high school, but I'm not really active on any social media platforms. All right. And I think that's really cool, actually, the shared Instagram account thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know people did that, which is really, which is really interesting. I think it takes um, a different angle into what Instagram can be used for and how people can interact on it. That's awesome. Yeah, I highly recommend. It's a it's a fun thing to do. And maybe even as people are heading off to college as a way to stay in contact with your close group of friends. And sure, you have seven Instagram followers, but it's also those seven people who are making up the account that you want to be staying in close contact with. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just talking about myself, too. I mean, in terms of my Instagram, I, I do have one. It's kind of the way I keep up with with family <laughs> overseas and my friends. And and I've noticed that my my Instagram often tends to look like a highlight reel because I don't I don't post the parts where I'm in my room studying for finals. I post the parts when I'm at prom or when I'm at this place or when I'm actually doing something interesting or fun. And so um, there's also this thing on Instagram now where you can kind of repost this little icon on your story and it's like highlights from the month. And so what I've been doing for highlights of the month is like if I am on my phone or if I have Instagram at that point, sometimes I delete it for like two months and then I come back on. It's very like sporadic. But when I'm on there and there's like people are doing that near the end of the month, I put up like as many real photos as I can. So like I put up pictures of my notes. I put up pictures of like library study session, 2 a.m. Like I put those up on there too, just to show that this was what my month was like. It was fun, but it was also like work and it was also like this. Exactly. I feel like that can be such a helpful way of people figuring out how they want to design their relationships with social media of thinking about what do they want to see on other people's accounts. And Mm -hmm. so- taking that moment of pause and reflection and then realizing I would feel so much better if I saw other people's more mundane day-to-day moments. So I'm going to take that step and post those pictures um, and, and share that and kind of humanize myself, which hopefully will lead to other people who are seeing my account just feeling a little bit better too. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, so you mentioned technically politics, um, something that you're working with Emma on. I would love to hear about what technically politics is and how you developed it. 
Absolutely. So Emma and I met in fall 2020, I believe, actually on the Look Up Youth for Youth Summit call. I was a moderator for a panel that she was on. And then we re-met a couple of months later at the Center for Humane Tech, had a youth leaders in the digital wellness space event. And that's where Emma and I really started talking about how we feel like there's such a deficit of youth voices in this legislative space around tech regulation. And here are lawmakers who presumably hopefully have the best interest of the younger generation at heart, but maybe they have a personal Facebook or an Instagram run by an intern. And their experiences with technology are profoundly different from us being the first generation to grow up in tandem with this growth of digital tech. Right. And how can we integrate youth voices into the space so that lawmakers have a bigger sense of what we want and what we need as they're working to create and support legislation that will adjust how technology can interface with its younger users. Um, and that was a year and a half ago. And technically politics has been growing ever since. And this past year has been really exciting for it. I'm happy to delve more into that. But that's my little overview of our organization. That's great. I mean, that's awesome how you guys were so motivated to create something like that from that perspective of young people. And now I'm super curious. I'd love to hear what's been going on for the past year. Absolutely. So the premise of Technically Politics was to, to collect testimonials from young people around the country, documenting their experiences with tech and how they want to see the design or regulation of tech change. So to try and humanize all this data that's coming out about increasing mental health issues of this younger generation, because I think it's really easy, especially for people who haven't lived through it, to write those off as numbers. So let's pause for a second and hear the stories of the young people behind these numbers. And I think from that, there's a lot more compassion and empathy that can develop and also this greater sense of listening and mutual respect, which I think is what we need in order to reach a place where we have laws that are protecting younger people in the face of big tech. And so we initially started with having a virtual interview submission online. And so we asked questions through a virtual platform and then people would respond on their own time and upload their video submission. And we had a bunch of friends who said they would do it and nobody did. So it was months and months of waiting for submissions to roll in. And then one day, I think I needed a break from studying for finals last winter and I wrote on a little piece of cardboard, use your voice to change laws governing tech um, and get free chocolate. And I sat out on the main green all bundled up with my little sign and some candy in front of me. And I mm -hmm. interviewed people. And so over the span of probably four or five interview days when I was on the main green or sitting in the dining hall, I interviewed 65 people and had oh over two hours of footage. And it was amazing. And so I interviewed a lot of my friends on campus. And then also I met people through this conversation, which was so cool. And I think there's this idea that as young people, our experiences aren't so valuable. And I think especially in the face of technology, when we know so many of the very severe consequences that can come from it, if people haven't experienced very real and, and drastic mental health issues, they feel like what they've lived through with technology isn't necessarily valuable to share. And so really working on destigmatizing that and the fact that you had a conversation with your friend and then an ad for what you're talking about popped up on your phone 
that that's freaking you out, that is very valid and we want to hear about that. And so I've made friends through these interviews and it's cool getting to push people a little bit when they say, I don't really have anything to talk about. And it's okay, think about your experience with social media and what would you want to change about it if you could? And it's watching realization kind of cross over people's faces is really amazing because I think as a young person in this country, in this era, everyone has something to say about technology and really not work, really working to not just paint it as this awful thing, but we know its benefits and we know its harms. And as young people, we want to leverage our experiences such that lawmakers are really working on holding on to these benefits of digital tech and especially social media while reducing the harms. And then this summer, I'm interning with the amazing organization Accountable Tech, and they are giving me a platform to work on technically politics and also learn from their campaigns. And so we have a video editor who's also part of our our grant cohort with Lookup, Ryan, um, a first year, he just finished his first year at NYU for film. And so he is working on editing our video testimonials into episodes. And so these episodes will be based on the issues that people discuss. We just finished one about surveillance, advertising, and privacy, and are going into one on body image. And it's just really thrilling to get to see all of these common threads that people talk about who they haven't had conversations together about this, but it's popping up. One of the things that struck me the most is how much people talked about the next generation. And everyone I interviewed was under 22 years old and they were already talking about their younger siblings and younger cousins. And the when we are parents, I want my kid to be in a world where technology is safe. And I think that is so so potent the fact that we've moved beyond even worrying about ourselves because I think sometimes it feels like a lost cause I also think my generation and older we are super lucky we were just on the cusp of iPhone coming out and this rise in technology so we remember a childhood where we were reading physical books and where our parents didn't have smartphones Um, but the fact that we're already concerned for people who aren't even born yet, I think is a huge call to action. So it's exciting and daunting to feel like there's a lot of power in all of these testimonials and all of this footage and the way that we edit it and release it can have an impact. So exciting and so nerve wracking, but really grateful for all the support that we're getting in this. And the Accountable Tech team is wonderful and Ryan's editing is great. So that's great. Well, first of all, kudos to you and your team for for putting something like this together and for starting something wonderful like this. I think it's really, really important for those youth, youth voices to be heard. And that perspective is great. I mean, I remember personally for me, too, when I was first thinking about this movement, I, I didn't really think I had an opinion because it wasn't affecting me like in a super extreme way. And so I was like, okay, I don't know if, you know, it'd be relevant for me to get involved. But then when I spoke with Susan or when I spoke with, um, you know, David J and things like that, I, I, I started thinking about it. Like everyone has an experience with it, regardless of whether or not it is in an extreme way or in a less extreme way. But that experience helps you think about how the way the technology is designed and how, you know, 
the way that it can affect future generations. And, you know, the, the idea of future generations, I mean, my brother is 11 and I mm-hmm. already feel like I'm in a different generation than he is just by the way we've grown up differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember so many parts of my childhood were, you know, without any technology. We, I, I went to this after school program when I was all through elementary school and we'd come up, We'd come into the center right after school, it was right next to my school, and we'd have 10 minutes to eat a snack, and we couldn't use our phones or any technology because we didn't have any. Yeah. Um, we'd, we'd, we'd go into the homework room, do our homework, and we'd play until like our parents picked us up when they got home from work. And so that was my entire childhood. And we I spent my summers there and we went to like parks, we went strawberry picking, we did like things that I feel like my brother didn't do as much you know, outside of our family. And even with like things that I did for fun, we played, we did like these handshakes and we always, you know, my brother doesn't know any handshakes. And I was like, you don't know how to do lemonade. Like, or you don't know how to play, you don't know how to play Oreo. Like I used to do all these hand games and stuff and he just never used it. And that was very surprising for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My younger sister is three years younger than me. And when I graduated fifth grade, there were a couple of people in my grade of 50-ish kids who had phones. A couple got them for graduation. And then when my sister was leaving fifth grade, same school, she was one of maybe two or three kids without a phone. And that's a three-year age difference. It is jarring. It's yeah. jarring. Yeah, same with my brother. I mean, he he didn't have a phone. Like, he doesn't have a phone right now. He's going to sixth grade. And like everyone he knows has one, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. And you mentioned how, you know, technically politics and a lot of what you work on is on the legislative side of things mm-hmm. and kind of appealing to legislators. And so um, with all the things that are going on in California, I would love mm-hmm. to hear your opinion on some of the efforts behind AB 2273, the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, and maybe AB 2408, the Social Media Platform Duty of Children Act. Absolutely. So at Technically Politics, we've definitely focused a lot more on the design code. And we went out to California for a lobbying day. Unfortunately, I had COVID during this, so I was a day late. But Emma and a bunch of our other wonderful youth advocates um, were able to go and lobby in California for some of these bills. And then for design code, we've called in and given a couple testimonials. But I think this, this bill is one of the biggest ones that we support right now and based off of UK legislation and working to make platforms that have younger kids as part of their user base or users under the age of 18 by default to have their platforms at the strictest privacy settings to have manipulative design features such as autoplay turned off and really working on for the baseline to have the digital world be safer for young people, which I think will be so impactful because I still, every time um, I like open Netflix on a new device, I have to go look up how to turn off autoplay and it's just not easily accessible. And so then if you have an eight-year-old in front of YouTube or whatever it may be, and it is designed to be psychologically addictive and to keep you hooked on, if you are under the age of 18, odds are you're cognizant of that really, really low. And so here's a place for legislation to have such a big impact in protecting young people and the pervasive face of tech. 
Yeah. And I, I can't imagine how that would be for younger children as well. I mean, even me, like I, I have YouTube on my phone. I listen to music mm-hmm. on YouTube. That's probably the easiest thing for me because Spotify premium. I don't know. I just, I just don't buy anything for premium. It's just a me thing, I guess. I'm not willing to invest any money in anything that asks me for money. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I just you know, use YouTube because it's not a big problem for me. But like the thing is on YouTube, there's like a YouTube shorts button too. And like it comes up like even if I'm not on YouTube shorts, there's like sections on like my phone in which they like show you stuff. And then it looks interesting. You, you press on it and then you and then it just like automatically keeps scrolling too. And so before you realize it's been like 30 minutes and that's not even why you got on YouTube. You got on YouTube to put on some music so you can do something. And it's just, it's crazy how it affects everyone, even who, you know, maybe seem a little older and, you know, should, I mean, I personally think, okay, I think I can handle this. I think I can reasonably get on here and control myself. I'm an adult, but at the same time, when I go and do it, it's just something that just happens and I can't control it. Absolutely. When so much science is going into figuring out how to get users to stay on the platform, regardless of your age, you will fall victim to that at some point. And yeah. so how can we bake into these design models to not be profiting off of the time of young people? Right. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for all your efforts behind these bills. Thank um, you. Yeah, of course. I would love to maybe wrap up by asking you about the role you think youth advocacy plays in a movement like this and how young people can get involved. Absolutely. So all youth can get involved. You always have a story. And I think to hold on to that fact and your story is no less important than anybody else's. And there's also so many different ways to tap in. So if you're interested in public speaking, there's a platform for that. If you're interested in design, there's space for that. And and knowing that your experiences and your interests and how you wanna see this realm of technology change is valuable and it has the space to enact some change. And I think as young people, we are so often put in this box of, you can't do anything. And this digital wellness field would not be what it is without youth involvement, because we have such a unique position of being the youngest people to have grown up with this and also to be able to share our stories. And so I highly recommend turning to lookup.live to Center for Humane Technology, the Social Dilemma and Exposure Labs. I know Log Off Movement is working on bolstering um, their their youth engagement and programs as well. And just shoot your shot, I really think is the thing. There's always, there's always space for more voices and more involvement in this field. And just hold on to the fact that you are important and what you've lived and what you want to share can and will make an impact if you so choose. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And I totally agree with you with the whole shoot your shot thing. Um, I think the way I got involved in this was I sent a cold email to the Center for Humane Technology. Just like, I was like, hey, I'm interested in this movement. I would love to help out in any way possible. And, you know, maybe sometimes it just takes an email. It takes an email. Maybe it takes a follow-up email (laughs) or a call or something. And I think we're looking for more young people in this movement to share their experiences, to get involved. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for young people to integrate themselves into digital well-being as a whole. Absolutely. And I think young people can extend from elementary school 
up through past college right now. And it's these yeah. people who are really propelled to enact change based on what they've lived and what they've seen from the effects of technology. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eliza. I loved con- conversing with you today. It was great to hear your experiences and some of the movements that you're working on. Thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We will see you next week.